The genesis of many problems can be traced back to anger. A comment somebody made years ago, but you have rehearsed it over and over and over in your mind. Someone gets a promotion that you thought you deserved. A boyfriend or girlfriend leaves you. Life is full of grievances. And it's what you do with those grievances that matters. If you hang on to those, sometimes very petty things, they act as a sort of corrosive agent, eating away at your insides until one day you explode. Violent crimes, abuse, war, slander, malice, hatred, your anger becomes a conduit for these things. As we are walking our way through the book of Samuel, we have watched the rise and now the fall of Saul. Now the story shifts and the focus falls upon David. He is the promised king after God's own heart. And as we would expect of someone filled with the Spirit, God gives him great success. The narrator went out of the way to show us and Two episodes, how favorable David was in his rise in Saul's court. He is needed by Saul as a gifted musician to drive away this evil spirit. He is the conquering warrior who defeated Goliath and delivered the people of God from their enemies. He is a skilled speaker. He's handsome. He's got it all. Now in chapter 18, we see two reactions to his success. How do, how do we react when somebody's successful? Tells a lot about who, our own character. Are we able to rejoice with them? Or do we find that there is a little bit of anger there? That we, we really want to bring them back down to our own level? We noticed last week that Jonathan doesn't react that way. Jonathan is a Christ figure. He responds by rejoicing in David's success and loving him and making a covenant with him and divesting himself of all his royal ambition so that David could succeed as king, even though he is rightfully in line as Saul's son. But he, he empties himself. He takes the form of a servant In that, we see a good response, a good reaction to David, who is the Messiah, the anointed of the Lord. And in that way, he prefigures Jesus, who is David's greater son, the Messiah. The question we're asking today is, how does Saul react to David's success? Now, if Saul's anything like he's been in the past, we're in for quite a show. Sure enough, Saul reacts poorly to David, moving first from anger to being outright afraid of David and expelling him from his presence, from his service. And as we'll see, the natural man, apart from the Spirit, invariably reacts the same way to Jesus. Anger now, but one day it will end in fear. So let's turn to 1 Samuel 18. We're going to begin at verse 6. Let's read together. It's printed also in your bulletin. 
As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we give you thanks for this portion of your word. And we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we may behold wonders therein. For we pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. War in the ancient world was a seasonal thing. They would take breaks for the harvest, for bad weather. They had specific times, seasons, that they went out for war. We learned last time that David was establishing himself as a military leader, as Saul had set him over the men of war. Now they return from some skirmish with the Philistines, and as they make their way back home, they are returning victorious. And this is always a sweet time. It conjures up to me pictures of men returning from World War II, not having seen their families for years, rejoicing and celebrating in the streets. It reminds me of my own return from Iraq. Not that we were victorious, but it was a time of celebration. I'd been gone from my family for a year, and it was a time for rejoicing. So the women come out rejoicing, singing and dancing and making music. And someone comes up with a little ditty, not about Jack and Diane, but about Saul and David. And all the ladies join in singing. David is no longer just the littlest son in the least family in Judah, but David is on par with Saul. All of Israel now knows who David is. And this comes out in the song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, it's unclear if the women meant this to be a slight to Saul, but he certainly takes it that way. What is clear at the minimum is that David is at least identified as being on par with Saul. They are similar They both kill Philistines. They are both victorious. And in fact, they are both the Lord's anointed. 
Saul doesn't know this yet, but in this episode and the next, he begins to put the pieces together. Now, the women may have only been attempting to praise them both, but the way it's phrased, Saul certainly takes offense. The saying, it says, displeased him. It made him angry. And imagine each new city, each new person that they walk by singing this song and more and more he hears it. David, his, Saul, his thousands. David, his ten thousands. And then the next person. And then the next person. And it begins to grind on him. And he becomes more and more angry. And the speech that Saul makes in verse 8 where it says, he said, he's thinking these things. He's not saying this out loud. This is what he's thinking in his head. They're saying this about David, but they're only saying this about me. What more can he have but the whole kingdom? It's not fair. I'm supposed to be king, but they're praising him more than me. I want you to notice a couple things about his complaint First, what's driving his reaction? Why does he respond this way to the success of someone else? We can be sure that wherever the sidelong glance is, the inner dialogue that consists of comparisons between you and me, you and somebody else, we can be sure envy is lurking there. Envy is the desire to possess another person's gifts, possessions, position, or achievements. Envy and jealousy are closely related terms, but envy is always sinful, whereas jealousy can be good. It can be directed towards godly ends. God himself is jealous, and we ought to be jealous for his honor and glory. But like other attributes of God that we share with him, such as love or anger, we're not always righteous in the way that we direct those attributes. God is jealous in a righteous way. But God is never envious. Envy is always a sin. Envy looks at what others have and says, I want that so bad, I am willing to harm them to get it. That is what the text means when it says that from that time on, Saul eyed David. He had his eyes on him. He thought, I am waiting for the chance to take what God has given him so that I can possess it. What he most longed for was David's success. Much of what drives our modern economics is envy. What drives nations and leaders to desire forms of government and economic positions that have proven over and over again to not work? Communism, socialism. What drives that? Why do they keep coming back up when we can clearly see that the fruit does not lead to the promises? What lies behind the push for socialism and cultural Marxism? And I would argue that what drives these ideologies is envy. Judas is a helpful illustration for the reason socialism is so appealing, especially to the ruling class. Listen to this from John Chapter 12, verse 2. So they gave a dinner for him there, that is for Jesus. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. 
Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. See, John, John gives us a clue to what's driving Judas to say, I want to care for the poor. He takes a good, noble idea, care for the poor. We all should want to do that. And he says, I want to be the one to do it, to have the purse strings so that he can skim off the top. John shows us his true motive. It's not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. He used to help himself to the money bag. So the problem begins not with the noble ideal of helping the poor. We are called to help the poor. The problem comes when sin, the sin of envy, lies at the root, corrupting our endeavors. By the way, the Christian way to help the poor never begins with you out there. It never begins with someone else's money. It begins with your wallet, with your time, with your gifts, with those who you come in contact with. You see, we always want to put the problem out there and say, you guys take care of it. You care for the poor, government. But the problem is, it's our responsibility to care for the poor. Me, my wallet. You start there, then you won't have the problems that we get from our bloated bureaucracy. And the Menchies are a great example of this. The Menchies are not even a blip on the ruling class's radar. And even with all the mechanisms in place to socialize, care for the poor, it would be very easy for them to be steamrolled by the system and not get the care that they need. But I have watched so encouragingly as this body has united together to meet the needs of this family. Why? Because we love them. And we feel their pain as they watch their little one and they're helpless to care for him. And so we support them with our love and our prayer and even our finances. That's how you care for the poor. You ha- it has to be connected with relationship. And it has to be costly to us, not somebody else. We can be tempted to think that there's nothing we can do to change the economic situation in our country, nor can we stem the tide of envy that is sweeping our culture towards brutalizing one another. But there are things we can do. We can begin to extricate ourselves from systems that perpetuate envy. One small step you might take is to get off social media. Get off Facebook and Instagram. Just last month, the whistleblower released a bunch of internal documents of studies Facebook conducted on the harm its app Instagram is doing, especially to girls. It is destroying the life of our teenagers. 
they are struggling so much with envy as they compare themselves to other people. And these pictures are not real. They do not show reality. They show a fake artificial world that we create through filters. Facebook knew that these things are harming people. They know how damaging they are. They've done their own studies, and yet they silence those things. They hide them because they don't fit with their business model. They are only after making money. They do not care about your well-being. They don't care about communities. They don't care about the truth. And they produce envy over and over and over again. Get off your phone. Get off your phone. It is damaging you. And it will continue to damage you. I'm mortified. I walk by a group of students that are eating at a restaurant. None of them are looking at each other. None of them are talking to each other. They all have their heads down and they're looking at their phones. That is not community. And community cannot be found in those kind of environments. We need each other. We need to put our phone down. We need to get off Facebook, get off Instagram, because it's leading us to be envious of others. It's driving us to envy what others have, and it's leading to a lot of problems in our culture. I really don't think that we can make a case that Facebook is redeemable. I don't think it's redeemable. Its whole business model is selling your attention. That's not redeemable. There are ways that we can communicate online that are not so problematic. So I think we just need to get off them. Of course, envy is only possible where there is no thanksgiving. I mean, the ability to give thanks for the gifts and abilities of somebody else. The ability to rejoice with somebody who is being successful. This is the true litmus test of a Christian life to determine how far the rot of envy is in your own art. When you see somebody succeeding, how do you feel? What does that provoke in you? Is it anger? Do you, do you look at David like Saul? Why isn't God doing that for me? I hate that person. Again, they got a promotion. They got a new car again. I'm still driving in 1999. Over and over again, we make comparisons. We think about others' gifts and abilities and their personalities and the things God has blessed them with, and we want them. And it drives us to hate. We, of all people, should be able to do this sort of thing. Why? Because of the grace of God. It's amazing. As Jack Miller used to say, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. And you're more loved than you ever dared hope. You don't deserve the life that you have. You don't deserve the breath that you breathe in or that your heart continues to beat or that you experience the love of a friend or your family or you watch the birth of your child. You don't deserve any of those things. But God freely gives them to you. 
More than that, He gives you the forgiveness of your sins and He reconciles you to Him. You were an enemy of His. But He loved you and He drew you near to Himself. How can you turn and treat a brother or sister who's made in the image of God enviously? Thanksgiving is the key. Rejoicing in your place in Christ so that you can be like the psalmist who said, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. If that's not your confession, given all the struggles, all the suffering you experience, if you can't say that, you will be dominated by envy. Saul's envy drives him to anger, and his anger smolders to the point that he attempts sinfully to give full vent to his anger. But as we'll see, this doesn't accomplish his purpose either. It leads him further down the rabbit hole, landing Saul in the precarious spot of being afraid of David. He's not just angry, he's worried. He's afraid of that person. So let's look at the rest of this story. The last scene ended with Saul eyeing David from then on, meaning that he's stewing over it. To make matters worse, one day while David's playing his lyre, a harmful spirit from the Lord torments Saul. There David is, composed in his right mind, playing beautiful music. Saul cannot seem to get away from this guy. Everywhere he turns, he relies on David more and more. And then he has a thought. He's just sitting there. He's hearing the music. I got this spear. This might actually fix my problem. If I hurl this spear at David, he's just sitting there playing his music. I might fix all my problems. If David's out of the picture, Jonathan could be king. He can complete my legacy. This is going to be it. This is the perfect solution. Woom! And David evades him. David evades him twice. That's demoralizing. If you can't hit somebody twice, you might not want to be a warrior. You might want to pick a different vocation. Listen, it's pretty clear from this that if your boss is trying to kill you, get out of there. If he tries to kill you twice, really get out of there. I think that's what this text is teaching us. But somehow, Saul managed this twice. If my boss tries to kill me, I would not... Find it, I would find it very difficult to pick up the guitar and start playing for him again. Whatever the scenario was, it's demoralizing for Saul, making him doubt his abilities and fear David all the more. So he expels him as his musical therapist. Saul finally recognizes what Jonathan has seen all along. The Lord is with David. The very center of this text is found in verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. Even more astutely, Saul realizes that the Lord had departed from him, accounting for his lack of success and anger and now fear. Right there, right there in that moment, that's it. That's what Saul needs to change the tide. What do you do when you recognize that God has departed from you? 
Do you continue to go down the same path? No, you repent. You turn and you go the opposite direction. And you entreat the Lord to return to you. You confess your sins and you plead for His forgiveness. Even the man of God can find himself in the position that Saul finds himself in. The key is not to respond like Saul did. And David, not surprisingly, is a better model. In Psalm chapter 32, listen to these words of David. Blessed is the, is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Listen to this. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then, that's his position. Then he responds this way. I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David experienced what it feels like to have God departed. He describes that in very poetic language. It's like wasting away. It's like God's hand heavy on him. All because he did not confess his sin. Because he refused to acknowledge it. But then he realized that. And then he said, I acknowledge my sin. I confessed it all. I didn't hide anything. And God forgave the iniquity of my heart. Saul has an opportunity. Saul could change. At least in his relationship with God. When you have sinned, when you realize God has departed from you, the correct response is acknowledge your sin. Just to clarify, God doesn't depart from His people. But our experience of God does wax and wane. When we give in to sin like David, we experience God departing from us by darkness, by despair, by feeling absent, that God does not listen to our prayers or hear us, or that He has departed from us. It feels that way. God is doing that to test us, to try us, to draw us back to Himself. Judgment is always restorative. God wants to restore His people to fellowship with Him. And so, for a time, for a season, He leaves them to themselves so that they will turn, so that they will return. But David, being cast out of Saul's service, it doesn't lessen God being with David and prospering him in all his ways. Unlike Jonathan, Saul's poor reaction to the Lord's anointed led him to great sin. And this spiral is not unknown in Scripture. We, we see the same progression in Genesis 4. We already read from 1 John about Cain and Abel. In the story of Cain and Abel, God had regard for the sacrifice of Abel, but not Cain's. So Cain, what does he do? Just like Saul, he gets angry. And God says to him, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, 
Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. But he doesn't listen to the warning, does he? He doesn't turn and repent. He kills his brother, and in judgment, God curses him. And Cain exclaims in great fear, My punishment is greater than I can bear. You hear the fear and trepidation in his voice. And that way, Saul's reaction to David is instructive for our own reacting to Jesus, David's greater son. Saul provides a glimpse at every sinner that rejects the Messiah. Some who rejected Jesus can even lay claim to having succeeded in killing him. You can hear the anger in their voices as the mob cries, Crucify him! Crucify him! Despite being according to plan, the crucifixion is the spear throw of a people envious of Jesus' success. Envious that God was clearly with him. But as his bleeding, beaten, and naked body sinks in death, the shouts of anger fall away. As the sky, midday, grows dark, And when he breathes his last, the earth quakes as her maker dies. And the centurion watching this spectacle remarks in an exclamation shrouded in fear. Truly, this man was the Savior.